I don't remember what was said when I caught you two in bed. But now I sit here drinking shit beer, chasing Johnny Walker. Ed. Hi, welcome back. <laughs> so much to unpack this episode. Uh, so a while ago, I went to this show called The Addicts Comedy Tour. This comedian named Curtis Matthews puts it on. He tours all over and does this show, and it's a stand-up show about being an addict. You don't have to be sober to go. It is hilarious no matter what. And it's in a comedy club, so plenty of people were drinking because funny's funny. Anyway, I went to the show because Andy Huggins from episode one was opening, and yet again, Andy simply existing <laughs> changed my outlook on life. Here's the thing. I lived in like a super deep depression from birth, not an exaggeration, until I was 22. I was a deeply troubled child slash person because that's how stripping clowns are made. Anyway, around 22, I left an abusive boyfriend, gave up everything I owned and decided to turn my life around and crawl out of the hole that had been my static mental state. Yes, I know that sounds similar to the accident story, but this was 10 years before. I've got a cycle, okay? <laughs> I've got to a reach realizations, overcome things, figure things out, realize I didn't know anything cycle. So one day while this is going on, I was boxing up all of my stuff to take to the Goodwill because giving away everything you owned is what crazy people do when they think they figured it out. And I had my computer set to stumble upon. I don't know if stumble upon still exists, but it's this website where you choose your categories like comedy, makeup, architecture, whatever. And it would just play random videos based on your taste and you would thumbs up or thumbs down and it would kind of curate to show you more things. And it was just random stuff from all over the world. So there I was alone, probably 3am, high as fuck, random stumble upon videos playing just as white noise while I packed up my life, trying to figure out how to be happy. And this video started. It was the monologue, the last few minutes of Bill Hicks' revelations. If you haven't seen it, please go watch it. Those of you who know what I'm talking about, it's his, uh, it's just a ride speech. I didn't know who Bill Hicks was. I didn't know it was part of a stand-up special because when you watch it out of context, it ain't funny. <laughs> but I was so lost and I felt like this man was talking to me. I'm sure the pot had a lot to do with it. But Hicks saying, life is just a ride. We can change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. That is exactly what I needed to hear at that time. I probably watched it 10 times in a row. It, it blew my mind and it helped me make a lot of important choices after that. Obviously, I still fucked up a lot because I still had another 10 years of chaos, but it was the first revelation because <laughs> his special is called Revelations. Uh, anyways, fast forward, whatever that is, 10, 13 something years later to the Addicts Comedy Show a few weeks ago. I'm sitting in the green room with Andy Huggins and Curtis Matthews and a few other comics who I apologize. I do not remember their names. And somebody asked just super casually, you know, so how long was Hicks sober before he died? Uh, Andy answers. People start talking about, oh, I remember when he first asked me about wanting to quit. Oh, remember how crazy he was. Oh, remember he fit in a lifetime's worth of drinks in just a few years. Remember him first going sober, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I was terrified that quitting drinking was going to derail me, like make me someone different, fuck up everything that I had worked for, just everything, all the fears that you have. And here I was a few years later, like in a room with a direct connection to someone who died when I was nine years old. 
but had a direct and substantial effect on my life and helped change the course of like a lifetime of depression and just reevaluate how I looked at life and our psyche and everything else. And I was only in that room because of the choice that I had so feared. It was surreal, but really affirming of like, okay, I'm on the right path. I'm on the right path. (laughs) Part of that path is a comedian, Curtis Matthews. I have not sit down with him for the podcast yet, but I am going to. It is one of my goals now. He was so funny and the things he said on stage blew my mind. Uh, But I was in New York last week and Curtis put me in touch with another comic that he works with who also knows Andy. This comic's name is Ross Bennett. Ross Bennett was a cadet at West Point Academy when he quit to become a stand-up. He moved to Los Angeles in the 80s, which I don't know if you guys know this, but that was a crazy party druggy comedy time. (laughs) He quit drinking in 87 and is so interesting. He taught me a lot. I swear this episode is just full of quotes and books to read. I still haven't read uh, The Road Less Traveled, which he said I needed to. It's on my list, I promise. Anyway, we met at a recording studio in New York, so you can hear lots of activity in the background, even an occasional opera singer and like gongs and stuff. It just has the New York feel. Hustle, bustle, you know. Also, I can't afford a studio. So, I hope you enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Ross Bennett. I went out to Los Angeles in 1979, mm-hmm. uh, January of 79. It'll be 40 years this January. Oh, wow. And I lived there until um, the summer of 84. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I've said is, you know, I went to Los Angeles to become a star. Uh, but, you know, sometimes what you go someplace for and what you get are two different things. Absolutely. So I went there to become a, you know, a big, big star. And, but what I ended up getting is recovery. From Los Angeles. Yeah. So because the, uh, uh, it was probably the perfect place for me at the perfect time. Mm-hmm. Um, because like you, you, I was involved in this thing from a party standpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, I had been in the army. I had been a cadet at West Point. Oh, wow. Um, and I got this comedy bug. I got this comedy bug uh, around, I was probably about 20 years old or so. Mm-hmm. And I ended up leaving the academy to become a comedian. The, the joke I have in my act is I left West Point to become a comedian, probably the greatest service I will have ever done for my country. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and one of the things that attracted me to it, mm-hmm. stand-up, was that it was in bars and you could drink and you could party mm-hmm. and as long as you could do your job it was not a detriment oh absolutely it, yeah. it was like it was i got into the whole thing you know and we're talking you know 78 79 it just the whole it's like the whole world was just fueled by this mm-hmm. you know you had saturday night live you had you know john belushi you had all the all these people who who's personas seem to revolve around drugs and alcohol yeah okay and it was very attractive yeah and so i get out to la and um i get involved in the comedy store and the improv and you know what what i realize now is that you gravitate towards those people who do what you do there were people who didn't drink or use Mm -hmm. i just didn't gravitate towards those people 
Yeah. You know, I gravitated towards the people who, who, you know, it's almost like a secret code or whatever. You know, it's like you just all of a sudden you find out who gets high. Yeah. And then boom, you go off with them and they become your friends. Yeah. Okay. And you get to know the bartenders. So you're doing your shots and, uh, uh, and everything is covered and everything is cool. And, um, Andy was part of the crew at the comedy store. Mm-hmm. He was a comedy store comedian. Yeah. And he and I met. I, I and uh, he was just a nice guy. You know, I, I never knew. Him, I never partied with him. Mm-hmm. I never knew him as a drinker, or as a non-drinker, as a person. And I just, I just knew he Andy, just you know, because yeah. he was he had an act, mm-hmm. you know, and he it was a uh, uh, an act. You know, his his thing being from Texas and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that I was actually just talking to a friend of mine about that because she said something about some guy like, "Oh, he does coke," and I was like, "Everybody does coke," and it's kind of like, "Oh, no, everybody I knew <laughs> did." But that's when you create these bubbles. Right. What you do is okay because everyone around you is doing that. What's really weird is when is when you let somebody at some point, either in recovery or before recovery, if you reveal to someone what your actual lifestyle is. Mm-hmm. And it's not theirs. It's and you see their reaction to it. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty. It's it's eye opening. Yeah, you know, it's like wow. You know, they, you can tell that they're disturbed. Yeah, you know? I asked actually one of my best friends. I was in a relationship pre recovery, and uh, I remember asking him after we were drinking and, and doing blow and everything, and I was like, "Do you?" tell your wife you do coke and he was like yeah absolutely and I was like oh and he goes why and I was like I don't tell my boyfriend I just I feel like he's gonna judge and he was like no no no, don't don't people that don't see it as heroin or they see it as terrible it's but we know it's cool and I was like okay and it just rationalized it away of like they just won't he wouldn't get it it's not that big of a deal I uh I went out with a girl this was you know I've been sober for a while and I went out with this girl, and, I, and we, she met me at a club, and she was kind of, you know, she was just fun, you know, one of those bubbly kind of eccentric kind of people. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's go out, and we went out, and I went to pick her up. And she was storming, you know, she was just crazy going around her apartment with a beer, mm-hmm. you know, getting ready, drinking her beer, drink, getting ready, drinking her beer, and then wanting to take a beer in the car. Mm-hmm. And I was Roddy. sober at that point, I don't know, three, four, five years, something like that. I said, you know, I, I can't, you know, she goes, do you want, you know, she goes, she was allowed to give me one. I don't drink. She goes, you don't drink. And it was like, all of a sudden I was, I was, I interrupted her vision of what she thought life was. Yeah. And uh, oh, we ended yeah. Up, the truth is we ended up going out for a long time. Really? And, uh, uh, she struggled with it. it. It forced her to, you know, to, w- it, it forced her to ask herself who she was and everything. It was it would end up being very sad. At these yeah. days, it's a um, it means I can't go out with you. Really? Not just that if you drink, but if you if you're obviously a party person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just I just not gonna do that. I. You know, why would I do that to myself? You know. Yeah. So that's that's where I am right now. But but at that point, you know, I, she was just a fun girl. I liked her so much. She was a sweetheart. Can I ask so you that you said that was five years in your recovery or so? Three, four, five? I can say <laughs> about, well, I mean, my story is that I, um, I started going to meetings in 82. Okay. Um, I got into recovery in 82 in Los Angeles. And 
uh, I had four slips over the course of the first five years. Okay. And I had my last drink in 87. So I'm clean and sober wow. since 1987 for like 31 years. Congratulations. And, that's amazing. Um, uh, and so this girl was probably around 93, 94, 95. Okay. Like that. Okay. So you were like in it. You were. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was trying to think I was coming over here, you know. Because it's the whole an, an, anonymity thing is is important to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking back. You know, it, what I've read and everything. Anonymity protects me, and it protects the group. It protects me from setting myself up on a pedestal mm-hmm. and thinking that I'm special or different or whatever. Yeah. And because uh, I, I want to be a worker amongst workers. Mm-hmm. Okay. It also helps the groups because. You don't want somebody setting themselves up as being the the self-proclaimed face of some organization. Yeah. And then when they when their clay feet is revealed. Yeah. Okay. Then there's people. You don't want everyone to have something you say. You have someone go, well, well see that thing doesn't work. Exactly. Look at that guy. Yeah. Okay. So I do my best. I'm not uh, I'm not speaking as a member of any group. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I do. Uh, the, the quote unquote 12 steps of recovery are the basis of my life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because at some point I had to say to myself, what do you believe in? Yeah. You know, what are your values? What, you know, what, what code do you live by? Mm-hmm. And, um, I accept those things to be pretty much right on. Yeah. You know? And so, uh, a lot of what I do and, and I think and everything these days, it just all reflects back around that. That's my language. You need a language yeah, of your of your philosophy, and that's the language of my philosophy. I've, tr- I've tried talking to this about people that are not in recovery, just friends of mine, and explained that, like, I really feel like they're just, it's just ways to remind me, myself not to be selfish and not to be a good person. You know, it's not it's not necessarily about the drinking. It's about what caused the drinking and going back to that instead. So I don't know. I, I do find we tend to be um, very self-centered, mm-hmm. you know, and and um, grandiose. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, when, I think when I heard it one once uh, egomaniac with an inferiority complex. <laughs> Oh God! And when I heard that, <laughs> it hurts. It, it it made so much sense, you know. I and and it was you know it's it, there's wit involved, you know. I'm a comedian, yeah. And so you know uh, that was one of the wonderful things going starting in, uh, uh, around Los Angeles, is there was all these people who were very witty, mm-hmm. you know, actors and actresses and writers and creative people. And uh, so comments like that, you know, it just it drew it me in. It made, so hard. And it's one of those things. I, I was telling someone recently, I'd heard that basically you, everything you learn in your first 30 days, mm-hmm. you basically spend the rest of your life digesting. You know, and... You keep giving me all these quotes. I'm going to have to really process all of this. And it's the truth, you know? I mean, yeah. it's like I'm still going back and I'm still picking up and, and remembering those things. Yeah. Um, well, okay, let's go back really quick. So you you went to LA. Were you a partier before? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it, the thing is, I wasn't a. I really wasn't a partier in high school. I was. I would when, when I had a drink, I would get drunk. Okay. Okay. The few times I drank, I would get drunk. Mm-hmm. And um, I would probably say probably much pretty much every time I drank, I got drunk. Yeah. Okay. 
uh, and then I, uh, and then at some point I, I got uh, marijuana came into my life, mm-hmm. and I sort of became a pothead, you know. And I, I, George Carlin had this thing I heard him say years ago, where uh, he goes, "When I drank, I threw up in my shoes." He goes, "When I drank, I got high and I threw up in my shoes. When I smoked pot, I got high and I didn't throw up in my shoes." I'm going to smoke pot. That's <laughs> yeah. So that's, I can understand that, you know, that, that when I discovered pot, I found that uh, it didn't have, I got to carry a load, you know, I, I was, and it was, it, it was immediate and mm-hmm. it was, uh, and it was noticeable and, but it didn't make me, it didn't, it, it didn't have the same negative, as much of a negative effect. Yeah. Of course, later on it got, so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I always claimed I never had hangovers, but I, I did. They just weren't as bad. It was more of like a groggy, sleepy. I just wasn't vomiting. Oh, I also, you know, as a comic, I didn't have to wake up. Mm-hmm. So I slept through most of my hangovers. Okay. And I got to L.A. and I met this woman, this sweet little lady. And um, literally the first week I was in town, I auditioned at the improv and Bud passed me and put his arm around me and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. And gave me spots, and I turned around. This girl was looking up at me with this face like I'd never seen before. This just this beaming face, and I moved in with her the next day. Oh my god! And uh, <laughs> uh, we were together until she died. You know, oh wow! We, we ended up getting married at the comedy store on uh, April first of nineteen eighty-two. Was she a comedian also? She she was she worked in the advertising industry. She. I was a very funny lady. She tried to do comedy a couple of times, and she took some improv classes. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, she was a sweetheart. Mm-hmm. And her name was Jan, Jan Goder. And uh, we had a son, and uh, he's now 33. Oh. Okay. So, um, uh, but we met, and basically we were just, we were partners in crime. You know, we were... Uh, you know, we partied together mm-hmm. all the time, and we just we lived in our we lived in our own little bubble. The truth be told, yeah, lived in our own little bubble, and she was a sweetheart. Yeah, um, and we got married in '82, and basically, I bottomed out in '82. You know, and I, and and the thing about this recovery thing is, you need a bottom. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's. And I can't, I have to always remember, I can't make someone hit a bottom. Yeah. You know, I'm not a quote-unquote interventionist. My, my, my job is not to... Do you think that has ever worked, by the way? I just, I, I see, I've seen them on TV, but I just always, like, as somebody who went through a lot of shit and still was like, no, like, didn't get it until randomly I got it every time I see that I just feel like that's not going to work if they don't want it if they're not asking for it themselves I just don't see it being sustainable you know that they talk about you know the ego has to be crushed mm-hmm. okay and uh, and the thing is it doesn't stay crushed the miracle is is, is, is I always I look at it like this that, that when when you hit a bottom mm-hmm. there's a window of opportunity and the question is whether or not at that moment, when you're at your bottom, is a message of recovery offered to you. Okay. Okay. And so the, I happened to go to a place that offered the message of recovery when I was at an absolute bottom and I knew that my way wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And, I was, and I was really hopeless and helpless. Okay. 
And still, uh, five years later, I have my last drink. But I'm very grateful that I was able to be at a place when I was at my lowest that basically told me that I had a problem. So was your bottom before or after you got married? It was really, it was, it was after. Okay. It was, um, Belushi had died, I think in the February or March of 82. And it started, that started to make sense. There was these things that were going on. You know, there was this guy, I had this, ep, you know, here was this guy and everybody was saying the most talented, talented, you know, guy in the world. Mm-hmm. And he would always be this tragic figure who died so young. He had so much talent. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and somewhere in the back of my mind, it was like, if I OD'd or I died, they go, oh, yeah, he was that guy who was trying to make it, but he was messed up all the time. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, there was that thing in the back of my mind that... You saw through the glamour somehow. Well, <laughs> kind of jealous of your ability think, to I do that. Were, I think there were some people that, and I think myself, thought that the... That substances, substance abuse, mm-hmm. was somehow part of the creative process. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think that's very and common to think. I now believe that my creative process process happens in spite of the substance abuse. That's mm-hmm. my belief. You yeah. know, it's it's like um, because otherwise, you know, you look at someone like Jerry Seinfeld, Jay Leno. These are guys who. You know, they don't do any of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they create a plethora of material. Yeah. Okay, of quality material. Um, so one is not contingent on the other yeah. in terms of... Uh, and, and it took me a while to, like, overcome that. So we paint ourselves into a corner. I painted myself into a corner in terms of what I thought I had to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of entertainers, artists, everybody, a lot of people do. I think it it makes you more interesting. Like I said, there's this idea of like, I'm special, I'm different. And it also, it also erases the fear. I would say for me, that was the big, and I'm I'm still noticing that today, is that I was fearless Mm -hmm. when I would do a couple of shots before I went up on stage. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't go on stage sober. Absolutely ever. fearless. And even today, it's, I still, I need to get a few laughs to really start to break down my fear. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. If you watch my <laughs> Letterman set. Do it yourself. If you, if you watch my Letterman set, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm up there and I'm waiting for the first couple of laughs. And then as they come, I get more and more confident. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've always been very insecure. And I still am, you know. Uh, and, but after I get a couple of laughs, it's like, okay. okay. <laughs> I, I, we I got, got this. It. But I'll tell you, if I don't get those first couple of laughs, it becomes work. Yeah. You know, now I have to start closing down. I got to put the shields up, close down, get focused. You know, yeah. I had a show the other week and they were very tough. Very tough, and I has and I you know and I, I had to like really focus on my act, mm-hmm. you know, and I, you know I, I spent years in the, uh, doing colleges, and I worked with a guy Joey Edmonds, mm-hmm. uh, he has the Joey Edmonds agency, and um, he'd always said you need an hour clean, that you basically can do with no response. What way? To do colleges. 
Okay. Kind of because, oh, because they're not going to respond? or Well, what if they don't? You know, so many comics, you're up on stage, and things aren't going right, you start working the crowd. Yeah. Start asking questions of the crowd, okay? Yeah. Well, what if you're at a, uh, you're doing a noon, you know, you, you're doing a noontime show in a cafeteria, okay? And an hour with no response sounds terrifying to huh? me. You have to have an hour that you can do without response. Doesn't mean there's not response. Okay, just be. But it doesn't require anything coming back from the audience. Okay. It doesn't require them to say anything. Okay, I thought you meant like no laughter at all for an hour straight. You have to. But what if there is no laughter for an hour? What if you go up and there's like, there was like, ten people. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so many times. I mean, I used to work at the Laugh Stop and. Newport Beach, Saturday night, three shows, eight o'clock show, 280 people, killing, mm-hmm. 10 o'clock show, 280 people, killing, 12 o'clock show, eight people. These were the ones who wanted to get into the 10 o'clock show, but it was sold out, and they just spent two hours sitting in the bar hearing the greatest laughter in the world, and now they're one of eight people in a room. Oh. And they're expecting a show, and they are pissed off. Oh. They're not getting the same show because there's not the 200 the energy people. And, yeah. and yet, they require me to do the show. Okay? Mm-hmm. And you're a young comic. When you you got to do what you're told. Yeah. Okay? And you, you can't spend your time on stage complaining about the lack of audience, yeah. about the lack of laughter, what's that wrong with you. That drives me crazy when people do that. Like, oh, I guess everybody else is at the more fun show. Well, f- yeah, fuck me for I being have, here. <laughs> I have to treat them as if this is the most important night of their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, Andy's the one that drilled that in my head yeah. because he gets so angry at people when they go up and they just start berating the crowd of like, this is great stuff, guys. Like, obviously, it's not like it's not on them. It's not their job right now. It's your job. So when he said you have to have an, an hour you can do without any response, it can't your act couldn't be contingent upon their response okay and so that made it so I acquired that skill a long time ago and I have an act Mm -hmm. you know comics need an act and I was out doing it in Pennsylvania a couple of weeks ago on a Tuesday night and I wasn't getting the response and I had to like just really get focused and really focus on my act and I eventually got them Mm mm-hmm Okay, I eventually got them, but it was, you know, it was all my skills. I felt like the Godfather revealing <laughs> my uh, Sonny's body to the, uh, 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 to, the, to the funeral guy. I saying, I want you to use all your skills and your powers. <laughs> yeah. I don't want his mother to see him like this. I had to use all my skills and my powers in order to, you know, get this audience to, to, to respond. Yeah. You know, and I had to do 45 minutes. You know, uh-huh. I, and I'm starting to think that they did. It might have been one of those situations where they didn't know there was going to be a comic. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm not certain because I didn't ask. Like I, you know, I should have asked, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've actually multiple times had to. But win. the check cleared. Yeah, well, that's all that matters, I guess. <laughs> but I've had to ask people to introduce me as your comedian or your stand-up. I'm like, because it's when it's shows. I actually did a fashion show with a friend. Uh, Mung- I don't know if you know Robert Mungle, but uh, we it was a fashion show. They didn't know there was going to be stand-up afterwards. It was 30 minutes of girls in dresses walking, and then we just walked up there. 
and started telling jokes. And I'm like, you got to know there's going to be a show. You have to tell them there's going to be they comedy here. It was the most, it was so they awkward. you got to know there's going to be a show. Um, so I tell myself this. I don't know if this is actually true. I think, I'd like to think it's making me better. For the longest time, I told myself that I was better drunk because of what you, you tell you, because you're not afraid. And then I was terrified to start going on stage sober. It took me a long time. I st- would still get weird because uh, they're looking at me. <laughs> and I know that they're looking at me. Uh, but I remember it was maybe a year or two years ago. I bombed so bad after a festival. And I, it was the first time I really wanted to drink. When I quit, I was good. I, just, I was done. I didn't want it anymore. I wanted a shot so bad because it hurt so bad to walk off that stage and a not so supportive friend of mine even asked like well do you want me to get you one and I was like no I have to feel my feelings this is the only way I'm gonna get better is to like sit in how much this hurts right now it's uh it's really challenging particularly you know when you're when you're opening up and you're revealing who you are mm-hmm. you know you're pulling the, the walls down and you're raw up there I like the I'm a big fan of Seinfeld. I worked with him a couple of times over the, you know, you know, oh, early, early on, but, uh, and I, you know, he's, I don't, I don't really, I don't know him. Mm-hmm. You know, we've met a few times, but I'm a big fan of his and I admire him an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And that movie comedian he did about, I don't know, 15 yes. years ago or so, uh, there's a point in it where he's working on this new act. He's putting an act together. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point of it. And he's on stage and he's not getting laughs. And he's sort of standing by a piano and he's looking at his notes and he's not getting a laugh and he's shaking his head and he's just kind of frustrated. And me, I would be in so much shame over not getting the laughs, mm-hmm. you know, over, over it. He was simply irritated that he couldn't figure out how to make the joke work. Mm-hmm. In his, his special he did recently for Netflix, he said when he came out, and I remember when he first got out to L.A., uh, he was very good. It was these new, I was out there, and I said, these New York guys were coming out. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a New York guy, okay? And these guys like, you know, George Wallace and uh, uh, Larry Miller and Jerry Seinfeld and Richard Belzer and these New York people were coming out. And they had a polish, and they had a... They had an air about them, an air of confidence, really strong material. Mm-hmm. And in the, this, spe- this last Netflix, it was called Seinfeld Before Seinfeld. He talked about being at the comedy store, and he goes, a lot of them had this broken wing thing, these damaged people. Oh, yeah. And he goes, I was never that. He always felt good about himself. He never doubted himself, you know? So, I mean, someone like him, he, didn't, he wasn't being driven by some of the same demons yeah. and things that drove me, you know? Uh, and I really admire that about him. His whole thing was about creating material, yeah, creating an act. And I, you know, you asked me when we were coming up here in the elevator to where we're sitting, we're actually sitting in the lobby of a studio area in mm-hmm. New York City where I'm going to be teaching a class. I yeah. teach a stand-up class. My one plug is I teach for the Manhattan Comedy School. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll um, put links and everything in the uh, show notes. Manhattan Comedy yeah. School here in, uh, in New York City. And the class I'm teaching is Comedy Writing Boot Camp. Okay. Which is basically creating material through performance. Okay? Okay. And my whole premise is that, you know, we write jokes, but we create material. Okay? Mm-hmm. The thing is this. that 
you need an act. Mm-hmm. And when you have an act, that helps give you some of the structure and armor so that when you go up, you have a purpose up there. Yeah. You have something to do. When I was drinking, my act was not what was giving me my strength. Mm-hmm. You know, I had an act. Yeah. A lot of it was, you know, hack and, and a lot of it was, I mean, I just had the idea, I always had the ability to, to, to get laughs. It's almost a detriment. Yeah, it gave you enough to keep going down I the always, wrong path. I always <laughs> had the ability to, to make my, to, to get by and to get response and to get laughter. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was saying may have been interesting, you know, but may have been ordinary, might have been, you know, vulgar, maybe whatever it was, but I always had all sorts of technique, mm-hmm. a lot of English I could throw on the stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, but to actually just be able to have the joke be strong enough. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I, I heard something a while ago, it was actually like a motivational speaker woman entrepreneur lady and she said um you want me to be extraordinary because it gets you off the hook and the idea was just like everybody can go out and do the th- do the work to get the life and dig themselves out of these holes like you want to make me special so that way you're okay not achieving these things wow and it it hit so hard and now what you're saying about like Seinfeld and Leno and these people who we across the board can say very successful like people you can respect and yet it's so easy for artists, comedians, performers to believe like, oh, no, we have to be damaged to be a good artist. But the proof is in front of us that that's not true. Ultimately, you have to be able, you, you got to be willing to, you have to be able to do the work. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, it's easier. It's you easier to, to feel to the work, like you know? I'm naturally, because I'm damaged, I'm special. And that means I'm going to be good, period. Like it's that, it's that corner we paint ourselves into. Mm-hmm that I'm somehow special. <laughs> um, so what, what got you out of that corner then? He said you had just got married. I would think that this would have got been married. the best, uh, to a lot of people, um, best time of their life, not and, the rock bottom. Uh, I had one of those nights where I was up all night and my wife was going to work in the morning. She basically just said, I can't, she goes, I didn't marry for this. And um, I, had, I had called and tried to get help a few times over the previous six months. And um, called friends, called hotlines, various hotlines, okay. and like, and, and and I would wake up in the morning and I'd be sober because mm-hmm. I would wake up in the afternoon, you know, and and I find a, n- a phone number and it's like I was so drunk, look at I called last night, that kind of thing. Mm. And this was a night that I'd been up all night, and um, I went to a meeting. Mm-hmm. I remember the one around the meeting, and everybody who didn't spoke would just identify themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm Bobby. I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I'm Trisha. I'm an alcoholic addict. I'm Alice. I'm an alcoholic addict. I'm, and it was all of a sudden a room full. It's like 60, 70, 80 people. Mm-hmm. All one after another, after another, after another identifying. Yeah. And I just started to weep. You know I mean? It's like I, I, had, I didn't know that's what I was. You know, I, I didn't know that there was anything you know I, I just I mean I can understand how people kill themselves yeah and um, it sort of gave me an identity in you know in, in this recovery idea and I latched on to it mm-hmm. and I got it very early on I was very I was very fortunate I, a lot of people always uh, I think would wrestle 
with can I get can I smoke pot and, and you know that whole thing mm-hmm. and I never had the first guy I talked to said it was anything that affects you from the neck up oh wow okay? <laughs> yeah so if it's a pill if it's a if it's a joint it's a drink whatever it happens to be mm-hmm. all of that is how I define my substance abuse it's made it very easy and I know people who've struggled with that you know, thinking they can do this, but not this. And yeah, blah, blah, blah. yeah. That's not what I'm. I'm addicted to this, not that. So this thing's okay. Right. And yeah, actually, uh, watching Curtis is what made me realize. Um, I when I quit drinking, I was very proud of myself. I got super into my work. My it's the best my shows had ever gotten. I started doing them on larger scales, doing all this stuff, and I felt so good, so good, so good. And I started crashing again really hard. And I didn't fully understand what was going on. And it took me a while to realize, oh, I'm just a workaholic now. I'm still running away from the things. I still don't want to have to sit and think and feel my feelings and process my reality. So I was just, and I'm still grateful it was better than blacking out every day. But I just, it was very easy to just replace, replace, replace. And I didn't know that was normal, though. Again, I thought I was special having these problems. I heard a guy speak once. Uh, quite a famous guy, sort of a guru kind of a guy. And he talked about coming in and throwing in the towel. And he used the towel as a metaphor for all of your problems, all of all of your stuff. And uh, after a couple of days, you feel better. And so you go out to the garbage, you pick out your towel, and you get it back. <laughs> and the rest of your life is taking little pieces of it tearing it off I'll give you this but I'll keep this I'll Mm. give you this and I'll keep this yeah you know uh, because we all I have found that um, I'll speak just for myself there's still things I hang on to I'm a human being Mm -hmm. you know so that I can feel um, safe I can feel protected I can feel contained Mm -hmm. or whatever you know I'm I'm in a much better place than I was 30 some years ago Mm -hmm. you know and and but it's, that's why I'm sort of in it for the journey. Yeah. I think even knowing that it's a journey is, is you being uh, just more grown up, I guess, and more, more just in a healthier place well, that, versus this like, okay, am I fixed yet? Am I fixed yet? Well, Which, that's, why, that's why that first year is so... Anniversary time is always a big time because it makes you think you should be graduating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why, know, why, why aren't get, I done? You've got to be really more vigilant at, at anniversary time. The last time I had a slip, I didn't celebrate an anniversary for like five or six years. Oh. Because I didn't want to set myself up to that feeling that I'm somehow fixed. Yeah. That you know? makes sense. And then I, you know, and then myself, I'm not saying this for everybody, but for me, I had some, you know, serious mental illness issues that really didn't come to the forefront until years into recovery there were things that were underneath everything that okay. had to be attended to at some point okay um, that um, I, I got married in 82 my son was born in 85 and my wife passed away in 86 oh wow and then I was sort of in the wasteland yeah and in the, while I was in the wasteland, I sought mental health professionals. Okay. And it, 
made a big difference Good. for me because I, there were pieces of myself that I didn't understand. What I remember is the first time I took a year, I celebrated a year, maybe 83 or 84 or something like that. What I remember is being at this meeting, but you know what it's like when you put your head in a bucket? Mm-hmm. I you, do. You hear, that, you hear that roaring sound? Yes. I've thrown up in a bunch of buckets, actually. But you hear that, I'm talking about, you hear that roaring sound. Yeah. Like, like you're listening to a, yeah, a, like a seashell. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like. I didn't feel like I was standing there in front of these people. Like I'm talking to you right now. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was in a cave, like I was in a bucket. It was all I heard was this roaring sound. And it was mental illness problems mm-hmm. that I didn't, you know, I come from a world where no one talked about anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we were like, you know, just real small town, Western New York state people. Mm-hmm. You don't have men. Nobody has mental illness problems. Nobody yeah. has problems, you know, you know, you suck it up and you, and you, you know, you do the right thing and you go in the army, you do this, you do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no, there's no yeah, problem. We don't talk about that. Right. Yeah. You don't have those kind of problems. Mm-hmm. And if you do have those problems, it's because it's you're weak. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually I just, I got around people who, like, helped me. God, I'm glad. Yeah, I know. Uh, so my uh, grandma on my mom's side was a bipolar schizophrenic. And now that I'm going into my recovery and going to therapy and processing a lot of stuff, I um, question it's actually caused more questioning because when stuff is happening, I'm like, oh, am I healthily processing this or am I going down a road of like justifying things? I just, I question all of my thoughts, honestly, because I'm afraid. Like, what if I'm, well, how crazy am I and I don't know well, I'm crazy? You're neurotic. Yes. That's what it is. Yes, know? I'm a neurotic and I, I a, question I a, the thoughts. I had a girlfriend a couple of years ago and she was having that moment. Like we were going out and going to the beach or something. She had her dog with her. All of a sudden, in the course of like 30 seconds, she questioned like 30 30 different things she Yeah, yeah, doing. and then you question the question because am I asking the question because it's a real question? I looked or? at her and I smiled <laughs> and I said, you know, it wasn't until this moment that I really understood what being neurotic, what being neurotic was like <laughs> because she was just completely up in her head and completely questioning everything and it just was a, like a big, a big mess of a circle. Oh, it just around. spirals. It spirals and, if I'm uh, left alone. And I was able I to can't. laugh at it. And she was able to laugh at it. We had a good sense of humor about all this. But I got to see it for what it was, you know. And um, life is, is challenging, mm-hmm. you know. And like I said at the very beginning, part of my toolbox mm-hmm. was the 12 steps, mm-hmm. okay? Those are part of my toolbox. Uh, there were some other things I got along the way. Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled, mm-hmm. that was went into my toolbox at some point. That's what gave me a way to bring spirituality into my life mm-hmm. in a way that, that worked for me. I don't even know what it is, and I will read it now. Thank yeah. you. And, it's, um, and then I went through a period of time where I was reading a lot of self-help books and everything. That's where I'm at right now. <laughs> and I eventually stopped all of that. Oh, damn. Um, and I, there was a joke I heard. Did you hear about the lady up in Northern California? Uh, She died. Uh, In the middle of the night, her pile of self-help books fell off her book stand and smothered her to death. (laughs) I'm using a Kindle, so I will not smother. She was crushed. (laughs) Crushed to death. The absorption of information without implementing the actions Mm -hmm. can be numbing. 
because you have all this information that you add to this judgment thing that you're going up on in your head yeah. all the time. That uh, So I just eventually just, I realized I pretty much have all the information I need. Mm-hmm. What I need to be doing is implementing this in my life. Yeah. And uh, so these days, at this point in my life, I just try and get small and, you know, get right size is actually more the proper way to say it. Damn. <laughs> no, no, like my no right or wrong. I know. I just I, the, I really like doing these these conversations because I like speaking to people who are much further along than I, um, because there's a lot of times that things that are just so um, uh, clear to them or things that, that they've already gone through. Where I'm like, oh, okay, that's that thing I just did. That's that thing that I'm going into. And I know everybody's different. Now, let me tell you something. This whole idea of someone being further along. Okay, I don't. I don't like that place. I don't like the thought of that, you know, because I really like the idea of one day at a time mm-hmm. because we've all been around people and you've been around this where you'll be like in the most messed up place, mm-hmm. anxiety, fear, anger, whatever it happens to be, you're messed up and you'll be at a meeting, you'll be talking to somebody and you'll say some sort of a truth and then all of a sudden you laugh and it just lifts. It's Yeah. And it's instantaneous and you feel like everything is just fine. Mm -hmm. Like right now, I feel everything is just fine, okay? It doesn't take 30 years to get to this place. Yeah. You're at that, you know, right now, you're just fine right now, right? Yeah. You're you're happy, (laughs) okay? Yeah. You're in good shit. So you're not, it's not about being further along. It's like, it's just, I just have more experience because I'm old, (laughs) <laughs> okay yeah. you know it's I, I, I it, it seems there's a price to be paid for this mm-hmm. you know and it's, it's, this is just the accumulation of information and, and, and life that's all but it's not yeah it's not something that you've done that you're further along I always tell because I, I hate it I've been to, I'll go to these meetings and you get these old I was, I was working on ships and I would go to meetings on ships mm-hmm and a lot of times it'd be like just you know, wait, like cruises. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know they had meetings on cruises. No, that um, makes sense. Though I friends of Bill W. or something like oh, that. Oh, I didn't know. Okay. And I remember going to this, this thing. It was like three or four of us. One guy had like ten years. One guy had like fifteen. One guy had twelve. And I had like seventeen or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're all saying, you know, talking about how great their life is and everything. And I said. Nothing worse than a bunch of old farts with a bunch of time <laughs> talking about how good their life is. Okay? That's boring. Uh-huh. You know, what we need is a newcomer. Okay? <laughs> Come in and shake it up. <laughs> you need a newcomer to tell the truth to, to be able to actually do a 12th, to actually talk the 12th step to. Because otherwise, you're just jerking off. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> And boy, they got pissed. Oh no! They got pissed, and I probably, you know, I was it was probably inappropriate for me because I was because I was commenting on them, yeah, you know, and their pomposity and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, I always have to remember that 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 it's about two people, really, mm-hmm. one having recovery and desperately trying to hang on to it, and another caught up in the disease wanting to stop but not knowing how to stop mm-hmm. and it's when those two forces get together 
that it's like flint and steel that creates a spark. Okay? Yeah. And that's what makes this thing happen. That's what makes this thing happen. I like it's that not about getting further down the road. Yeah. That makes sense. It now, mind you, I, I'm really glad to be where I am in my life and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know what you mean, but you just got to, it's really all about being in the day, being in the moment. Yeah, I guess, I, I mean, honestly, that's the biggest thing is learning to be in the moment because I spent most of my life trying to not be in the moment. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm learning how to do that every day. And sometimes I'm not so great at it. I used to hear, you know, life is not, uh, this is the performance. Mm-hmm. This is the performance. We're, this is not a rehearsal. Yeah. So many times I spent my life thinking I was rehearsing for my life, my real life that was going to happen over there. Mm-hmm. No, this is my real life right now. Yeah. You know, sitting in this little corner area <laughs> and talking. This is my real life right now. Yeah, I tell myself sometimes to remind myself, like, I'm living the goal right now, like, past me's goals and what I wanted, like, I'm at that now. It's just that the, the goalposts keep moving, and so I feel like I'm not at the thing yet, but this was, this was more than what I thought I was going to achieve many, many years ago, so just to accept that. I just want to believe everything's going to turn out happy all the time. That doesn't happen. Well, there. <laughs> that's, I think that's why you drink. Yeah. I want it to turn out happy all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I just try to create fantasy worlds. Uh, but now I do it professionally. So, <laughs> um, so last thing. Um, it's my final ask for the podcast. So I like to ask everybody at the end that if you could snap your fingers and everybody around the world just instantly believe something that was just good for humanity. What would that thing be? Hmm. That just because we disagree doesn't mean we can't be civil with each other. Yeah. There's a lot of disagreeing going on right now. I get just really because we disagree doesn't mean we can't be civil with each other. Yeah. It's just empathy a lot of times, I think. I feel like we're lacking empathy. And it, again, it just it makes me sad. I want everything to be okay. <laughs> Deanna Troy, remember Star Trek yes. Next Generation? She's an empath. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm not a Trekkie, but I always remember that. And I didn't, you know, I remember watching that very beginning of that series, mm-hmm. and about her her whole being thing being an empath, and that she could feel. Mm-hmm. That was her whole thing. She could feel what other people were feeling. Yeah, I think you know. I, don't, I, I know it's easy to blame like social media and stuff, but I do think that's so much of it. For I think it's done amazing things. The fact that we're talking right now, like it's connecting people around the world on so many just tiny, um, you find these bubbles of connections, but it's also breaking up the one-on-one, which you need to have the empathy, I think. It's so easy to argue if you're not looking in each other's eyes. It's so easy to name call. It's so easy to just completely discount what someone else has to say. And it's really unfortunate because... Yeah, I've gotten to the point on my, on my Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Once somebody has a, a diatribe... Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they may still be on the friend list, but I don't follow them anymore. Yeah. You know, I only want 
I want bubbles and rainbows. And <laughs> Me too. Unicorns. I have a rule. If I roll my eyes at as anything you say, I hide you. Because I'm yeah. like, I'm, I know that I'm, I'm curating my world and my experience in my life right now. And I, I just, those eye rolls add up throughout the day. <laughs> Thank you so much for sitting down with me. I really, sure. really appreciate it. Um, so my pleasure. <laughs> if people want to uh, follow up with you. Where should they go to your website? Well, I got my website, rossbennett.com. Okay, okay. I've got two CDs, mm -hmm. and they can get them on iTunes. One of them is New York Country. Okay. And the other one is Not If You Were the Last Man on Earth. Awesome. I'll put links to both of those on there. And uh, they're good. I'm proud of them. Huh. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. All right. And when tomorrow comes around, I'm maybe six feet underground, but I'll still that was Ross Bennett. <laughs> I definitely want to go back to New York and take his class. He was so damn interesting. Really, really smart. Uh, before we go, I wanted to give you all a quick update. The last episode was really, really heavy. I'm doing better now health-wise and mentally-wise. <laughs> Point is, I'm healing up. Things are going good. Uh, I'm so sorry if I scared you all, but I promise things are okay. A lot of you reached out to me about it, which I so, so appreciate. Um, one of those people was John Raven. He was the comedian that we met in episode four. It's a great episode. If you haven't listened to it, please go back and listen to it. His podcast, Yes, I'm Still Sober, is so good. So please check that out. He is the best kind of bitter. So John wrote this blog post back in 2014 called It Gets Better about how much he hates people who say, it gets better. <laughs> He sent it to me after listening to the emotional wreck that was last episode, and it's great. I linked to it in the show notes, but I also asked him if he would read it for y'all, which he was awesome enough to do and sent this over. So please listen, enjoy, subscribe to both of our podcasts, and I will be back next week. This is from my blog at ninthcircleofheck.com, uh, dated Monday, July 28th, 2014, 2.23 in the morning. It's called, It Gets Better, in heavy quotations. Sometimes Facebook is a good thing. By being on the damn thing, it allows people I know, who I normally don't talk to on my phone, to be able to contact me. Although I would normally say that's a deterrent for using social networking. Interacting with others. Gross. Recently, a friend messaged me because they were having a crisis. It was a bad situation, and they were at the edge of complete despair. They needed to be talked down from that edge. And I did the best I could, which was apparently enough. They're doing better, and they thank me for listening and talking them through it. Why did they contact me? I'll be the first one to tell you I am not a great resource for solid advice. I'm a prime example of how not to do many things, so yeah... If you want to know the worst way to handle something, I suppose you could ask, Hey, John, what would you do? And then do the opposite. Hey, Raven, I'm having this horrible dispute with a finance company. They may ruin my credit if I don't comply. Well, fuck them, man. What do you really need credit for, huh? Expensive possessions that will make you a slave? It's a burden. Don't play their stupid credit game. It's all made up anyway. Go out and live. Ah, set up a payment plan. Gotcha. No, my friend contacted me because they were at maybe the lowest point in their life, or at least it felt that way, and they knew I had been there. I know what it's like to be devoid of hope and ready to just submit to the abyss. They didn't want encouragement or a pep talk. They wanted someone who could relate who wouldn't bullshit them. 
I don't believe in fate, but I like to entertain the notion that I have made it to this point in my life to help others in just this way. I find it comforting to think that my purpose is to occasionally help someone up who needs it. This may be a bunch of crap, but hey, everyone is entitled to their own delusion. Besides, whether I help someone because of a mystical destiny or just because I owe the universe for over a decade of hedonism, the end result is the same. I'm stubborn and hard to kill. Might as well put that to good use. I don't bullshit somebody in pain. I may not be able to recollect much of the past 10 or 15 years, but I remember what rock bottom feels like, and I remember what I did not want to hear. There's nothing like positive affirmations from the misguided to really send you into a rage when you're down. Forced optimism is more depressing than actual depression. Hang in there! As much as I love ridiculous pictures of cats, if you show me one of those with a kitten hanging on for dear life and those three words on it, it tends to make me reconsider my opposition to violence. Smile. If you're an individual who likes to walk by a coworker's cubicle and tell them to smile first thing in the morning, or at any point in the day, I don't think you're aware how close you have come to enduring a stapler bludgeoning. Oh, and guys... You look prettier when you smile? Just go ahead and say, hey, it's harder to sexually harass you when you're all down and stuff. It's kind of a buzzkill, asshats. I think the worst one to hear is the most common one people say. It gets better. Hearing this sucks because it comes from someone who, you think, isn't going through what you are and hasn't been where you are. How would you know? Don't blow smoke up my ass. And then... When it inevitably does get better, you still feel like telling them, oh, fuck off, you didn't know. I think we just don't like some people to be right because we don't want advice. Don't try to fix me. Just recognize I'm broken. The truth is it will get better eventually, and then it will get worse at some point. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but our brains can completely forget this when we're down in a hole. Your fears and thoughts can cripple you and send you into a spiral that you don't think you'll recover for or even survive. And this all sucks because it's in our heads, not real, and we hurt ourselves way more than the actual thing we fear will. We put ourselves through hell based on the perceived possibility of purgatory. Four years ago, I was a junkie and lost my job, my apartment, and the woman I loved. I was staying on a friend's couch. And I was sure that that was it for me. If I had a gun, I would have killed myself. Okay, actually, I would have sold it and bought heroin. But if I had two guns, it was bad. At the time, I considered it the worst moment of my life. I was wrong because it got better. But then six months later, I overdosed while living at my father's house after being sober for a month. Dad happened to come home from work and save my life. When I woke up in the emergency room, I had a brand new rock bottom. Incidentally, the only real rock bottom is death. Things can always get worse. Things improved. Because of that, I went to rehab, started over in a new city. I made good decisions and poor decisions. Life went on. Due to getting arrested for public intoxication in 2012 while still on felony DWI probation, I had to come back to Austin and go to jail. While in county lockup, I was told I would have to do a five-month alcohol and drug treatment program and remain incarcerated, and that I wasn't going back to my established life in San Antonio. I had lost everything again, and being sober in jail allowed me to really feel this low moment, making it way worse than when I was strung out all the time. 
About a month later, while still in the custody of Travis County, I had a high point. I had begun to rebuild my thought process without being heavily medicated by booze or drugs, and I was reading Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy laughing hysterically. Even though I was in the middle of an awful place with questionable people and dressed in reject nurses scrubs, I was happy at that moment. Another moment was being able to host the open mic again at the Velveeta Room a couple of weeks ago. It was a very everything-in-its-right-place moment for me. In fact, I had a brief feeling of euphoria every time I skate to or from work. The highlight of my day is usually when I'm on a skateboard. And that is how it will go for whatever amount of time I have left. I'm going to enjoy those ups and fight through those downs. A low point is coming and I can't stop that. While I do wish sometimes I had an option again to escape feeling shitty, I am completely comfortable with feeling now. That's the problem with heavy alcohol and drug consumption slash abuse. And for some, with prescriptions you know you don't need. You stay even keel and numb so you can avoid pain and sadness. And you also avoid pleasure and happiness. It took me a long time to figure that out. Everyone is different, so I won't tell you what you need. For me, being able to enjoy those beautiful moments in my life fully is worth the ordeal of completely feeling those times of despair. I just have to remember to keep fighting when everything just sucks. I think I just wrote a big, long, positive affirmation that would probably make me roll my eyes if it came from someone else. I don't know if anyone will get something from this or not. I probably would have been fine with instead posting the lyrics to R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts. Truthfully, the main reason I wrote this tonight was for me to read in the future when life takes a turn. So, John, when you read this, take it from someone you'll listen to. You, dummy. It gets better. Hang in there. You don't have to smile, though. Fuck that. Yeah, we got it.